This is Fresh Thinking with Rabbi Ari Sheshla. Sure. So it is Thursday again. It is. Welcome aboard, Fresh Thinking. Hope you have had a good or are still having a good break in this uh, winter holiday period. And if you're back at work, hope you're back energized and enthusiastic. It's uh, Fresh Thinking time till 3 o'clock. I'd love to hear your thoughts and interactions, insights and ideas during the course of the show. Why did I say wow at the beginning of the show? Well, the truth is because there's a big topic doing the rounds right now. And I'm very curious to hear what people think about it. It relates to an article that came out earlier this week on well, I'm showing various news outlets. Um, I think it was actually already last week. And that is from the Minister of Education in Israel said that the scale of assimilation amongst world Jewry, especially in the United States, is akin to a second Holocaust. So I thought it would be interesting for us today to talk about that particular reference what does it make you feel? What does it make you think? How would you respond? Do you think it's appropriate, inappropriate? Do you think that perhaps it's a little bit uh, exaggerated? So that's what we're going to be talking about today. We all acknowledge, I think we all acknowledge that assimilation is a very serious problem and a great challenge to the continuity of the Jewish people. Would you feel comfortable or uncomfortable? And, and not just a yes or no answer. What do you think about the proposed suggestion that assimilation is a second holocaust. That's what we're going to be talking about over here today. And as always, invite your comment and your input, as we always do, 34519. If you're going to give us an SMS, you can also tweet at FM. Tweet me directly at Rabbi Shish. Send a WhatsApp. Send an email. Just let us know what it is that you think. This is Fresh Thinking with Rabbi Ari Shishla. So here it is. I mean, the minute you say the word Holocaust, you are going to obviously kick up a hornet's nest. We expect and we understand that that's how it is. I'm referring today to an article, or I should say a news item that hit the media probably about a week ago. It relates to the Israeli Minister of Education, Rabbi Rafi Peretz, who made a comment that assimilation in today's world jury, particularly in the United States, is like a second Holocaust. And apparently they quote him as saying that we have lost six million Jews in that way since the Holocaust. Now, needless to say, of course, if you put the word Holocaust together with the number six million in the same sentence, you are going to stir emotion. There is no question about it. And, of course, this became subject of a great debate in the Knesset with uh, other ministers responding and saying, well, hang on a second, you know, not everybody has to necessarily identify Jewish in the way that you identify Jewish. And, in fact, I'd actually like to read that particular quotation because I think that it's relevant to this conversation. This was the response, the, the, the rejoiner from Minister Yuval Steinitz, who said assimilation is not a critical problem. And then we must stop looking down on Jews who live in America. But then he said this. He said that not all Jews define their Jewishness by faith. Many view their Jewish identity as a cultural and historical one. And I think that that's really where this becomes a very interesting conversation. While, while obviously the word Holocaust is something that's got many, many people's backs up. And how dare you say such a thing? In spite of the fact that perhaps you believe that that's the amount of people that we have lost. The question is... 
What about how people identify? Who is it who can say, and this is, I suppose, another conversation in its own right, who is it who can say what is considered or who is considered to be Jewish? And that's one of these conversations that's been on the headlines for the last 40-odd years in Israel and around the world, maybe even longer around the world. The question of, you know, how do you define and who do you decide is Jewish. Can you be Jewish just simply by culture or by identity? I think you'll be careful with those kinds of things, but let's hear what it is that people have to say. I do anticipate that the world, that the word Holocaust in its own right is a word that gets people's backs up because we don't like to, uh, in any way undermine that word. If you've got a view on this, what do you think about a, a member of the Israeli Knesset claiming that assimilation is a second Holocaust? Love to hear your thoughts. You can WhatsApp. Oh, uh, so no, that's not the, where's our WhatsApp number gone? It's disappeared. So what's, it's what? Not working. Telegram. Oh, we're on Telegram. Uh huh. So what happens if people don't have Telegram? What do they do? If you don't have Telegram, you've got a problem. If you don't have a telegram, you've got a SNS 34519. One second, Craig, what number do we use for telegram? That's the question. Okay, Craig's going to get us a number for telegram. So if you're not on telegram, you should be on Twitter. And then you can tweet at Chai FM. You can tweet at Rabbi Shish. You can email on air at ChaiFM.com. You can phone the studio 0101403020. And you can SMS 34519. What do you think about this concept of suggesting that there is another Holocaust unfolding in the Western world, nothing to do with Nazis, but everything to do with Jewish people uh, interacting and assimilating and intermarrying and so on and so forth. I, like I said, I definitely anticipate that we're going to have people who get very up in arms around the wording, but that's fine. We can have that conversation. So I think uh, let's see, have we got a number? Craig, have we got a number? Don't yet have a number. Okay, we'll, uh, so we're gonna rely on SMS and on uh, emails <coughs> for the moment. Hopefully at some point we'll get, if you don't have Telegram, I suppose in the meantime you can go ahead and you can download the app Telegram. And the messages are certainly, certainly flowing in. Here somebody says, this is Annika who says, my thought is that misappropriating the Holocaust is not less offensive when we do it. So I, I kind of anticipated that that's what was going to happen. People were going to jump onto the word Holocaust. I feel often that when we have these conversations, we need to do a healthy job of unpacking or unbundling concepts. So while there are very emotive words, you always have to be careful not to throw everything into one group. In fact, I had an interesting conversation with a group of people earlier this week, and we were talking about you know, how wonderful it is that our world has progressed, and, and nobody can deny that. The world has progressed in so many areas, but you've got to be careful not to then believe that the world has progressed in all areas, because that's not how it works. It's not just like one great big bundle, one kind of uh, holistic experience. So if you find the word Holocaust perhaps to be horrific, I suppose that's what we're talking about. You still have to address the question, well, how would you say it then, I suppose? So here Annika says, misappropriating the Holocaust is no less offensive when we are the ones who do it. And that's a very good point because we are very up in arms. Recently in the United States where we had certain members of Congress making statements comparing uh, immigration camps to concentration camps, and we as a Jewish community, or I speak for, for people that I've heard from and people who I, uh, who I know, I suppose, the, the 
the response has been, how dare you? How can you make such a, 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 a comparison? We know that if people use the expression that Gaza is a concentration camp, people are up in arms about that. How can you make a comparison to the Holocaust? So Annika's point is, and it's probably a good point, is that if you don't like other people misappropriating the Holocaust, then don't do it yourself. Okay? Interesting. It's an interesting point. I think it's probably a very good point. Incidentally, we do have a number for telegrams. If you've got that app, it works pretty much the same as WhatsApp. It's got certain advantages, I suppose, and certain disadvantages like any other app. So if you would like to message on telegram, it's 0618951019. That's how you can send a message that way. I'd love, love to hear your opinions because I think this is a, uh, one of those things that really stirs up. It shouldn't just stir up emotion. It should really stir thought as well because I think one of the things we have to look at is just before you give a knee-jerk reaction, as I think people would be likely to do, think about it for a second. If somebody's making the comparison to the Holocaust, is he trying to say that the people, the practitioners, those who assimilate or intermarry are akin to those who brutalize Jews during the Holocaust? Or is the point that he's making, the net result is the same? And I think that that's, if you look at the quotation, he says, we've already lost six million Jews this way. That seems to imply that what he's saying is very much about the net result, that it's so many people who we have lost due to Assimilation and specifically, specifically due to, uh, in, intermarriage. So the net result possibly is the same kind of result as the Holocaust would have achieved, the net loss of Jewish people. But I'm sure not everybody would see this the same way. And that's why we're having a conversation about it. And I think it'd be very, very interesting also to know what a Torah perspective is on this kind of thing. Um, okay, here's somebody. Richard says, without belittling the crisis of intermarriage, I understand the rationale behind the perspective, but I doubt I'll ever be able to bring myself to agree with it. I think when things are compared to the Holocaust, they show on a certain level that we lack a true understanding of the nature of the Holocaust. And there's a lot of truth in that. You know, there's a, no question that there's a decline in today's world around the knowledge and sensitivity to just how significant and how brutal and how big the Holocaust was. And that's going to continue as we move further away from, from an event. That's exactly how it is. And by the way, that raises a whole different conversation, which is probably worth having at some point in time. And that's a conversation about how do you go about keeping the memory of the Holocaust fresh? And then a better question is, how important is it? How important is it to do that? So that's why people are so touchy around Holocaust misappropriation because they think we're going to, probably rightly so, lose the sense of what it's about. Love to hear your thoughts as well. SMS 34519. You can send a message on Telegram 0618951019 or you could tweet at Chai FM and at Rabbi Shish. There's a couple other tweets coming through which I will share with you shortly. This is Fresh Thinking with Rabbi Ari Shishla. So we're talking about something which is very close to all of our hearts, or at least it should be, and that's the question of assimilation slash intermarriage. And, of course, the comparison that has emerged in recent uh, days uh, between a second Holocaust and assimilation. And, of course, I think a lot of people take great offense to that. It's important. Uh, well, before we talk about that, here's Callan on Twitter who says, the effect is the same Fewer Jews. And I do think that that was uh, Rabbi Peretz, what's his name? Uh, Rafi Peretz. That was his intention. 
by saying that this is a second Holocaust, the net result is we're going to arrive at a smaller, diminished Jewish population. So Yaz Kalan on Twitter says, the effect is the same, fewer Jews, plus attempted assimilation may have contributed to the Holocaust in the first place. So many German and other European Jews thought that they were too German or European to be in danger. Well, I think that that is... Personally, I think that's dangerous territory. I don't really want to go down that route and say that attempted assimilation may have contributed. Well, may have contributed is probably different to saying may have caused. He's not saying, Callan is not saying that it caused the Holocaust, but saying it may have contributed because of the fact that people felt that they were somehow immune or somehow protected due to the fact that they were so assimilated. Very interesting point, especially when you consider how much of the Jewish victims of the Holocaust were not assimilated in any way, shape, or form. In fact, a very huge chunk of the religious communities of places like Poland, Lithuania, Latvia, and various other European countries, but those, of course, were the, the major amounts. They were really dedicated good Jews. And be so careful not to make a comparison that assimilation is somehow related to or a cause of um, the Holocaust. You've got to be really careful with that kind of thing. Uh, okay, now I know that this is, yeah, okay. Well, we'll come back to that in just a moment. There's some, some interesting points over there as well. A lot of messages coming through. And as I anticipated, I think the word, the word Holocaust is the word. Here's Annika uh, on, on Twitter who says, my general rule is only the Holocaust is the Holocaust. Intermarriage is a very serious crisis for the Jewish people, but not the, it is not the industrialized killing of us in the hands of Nazis. And I think that's the problem is uh, maybe we over compare things. It's probably not a good thing, generally speaking, to make comparisons because comparisons typically have all kinds of pitfalls associated with them. So if you're going to get up and you want to make a very strong statement and say that this is terrible and we, we have to do something about Assimilation and intermarriage Don't believe that the way to say it Is necessarily to call it a second holocaust But particularly because Who's your target audience And I think that's a big part of this conversation You get up and you make a statement like that Who do you want to get through to Is it just the kind of conversation you have in your own shul With a group of people who are like-minded And not in their wildest dreams Would ever consider intermarrying So then it's fine Then you can use all kind of loaded terminology And get away with it on the other hand, if you want to speak uh, to an audience who hopefully you're going to touch and influence, and uh, what's the objective? What's, what is our goal? Is our goal to say, oh, my gosh, things are terrible and, you know, woe is unto us? Or is our goal to say, let's be proactive and reach out and touch those people who clearly are disaffected and somehow show them or bring them or enlighten or share or whatever the appropriate word is because, I mean, so many of these words could land up being offensive. Just – Alert a person to the fact that there's beauty within their own culture, within their own Judaism, without, within their own religion that they are simply not aware of. You know, it's a really interesting thing. Very interesting thing. I'll tell you just, a, it's funny how things work out, but uh, just share something with you which um, might share some light, shed some light on this particular conversation. And that is, it's quite difficult for Jewish people to check out. <laughs> In other words, it's quite difficult for a person who is from a Jewish family and has some kind of first-hand Jewish experience, maybe they went to a Jewish day school or whatever it might have been, it's quite difficult for that kind of a person to uncouple themselves from their Jewish identity. It's a fascinating study, by the way, in Jewish, uh, in, in Jewish history, is all those people who thought that could, they could disassociate themselves from their Judaism, and then they discovered that they actually couldn't. 
<laughs> for a variety of reasons, either because the society around them did not allow it and the anti-Semitism came back to bite. I think that was Callan's point on Twitter earlier about people living an assimilated lifestyle or uh, because they just uh, they couldn't make the break. They could not make the break. I, just over the last few days, I've heard a number of fascinating stories of people who just they couldn't do it. As much as they wanted to reject their Judaism, they just couldn't do it. So we as Jews believe absolutely that Jewish is Jewish is Jewish. That means to say that it's part and parcel of your DNA. And as much as you try and run, you actually can't. You actually just can't get away from it. And that's why you will look around the world and you'll see that there are various people who don't identify necessarily within the Torah construct of what being Jewish is, but they're very proudly Jewish. And they'll tell you, my Judaism represents X and Y for me. My Judaism represents being a good person. My Judaism represents being a humanitarian. My Judaism represents being somebody who uh, is engaged in welfare. My Judaism represents being kind to animals, so looking after the environment, being a political activist, or whatever the particular thing is. It's fascinating. It's fascinating how there's always that urge to hang on to Judaism. Now, the reason that this is particularly interesting to me this week is because earlier this week, on um, on Monday and on Tuesday, the Chabad community commemorated the release of the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe who was held by the communists in 1927 by Stalin's Russia. And it was a major thing that they released him from prison. And in a relatively short time, considering that the climate in Russia at that time was such that when people went to prison, they very often never came back, or they were sent on a one-way ticket to Siberia, or they literally did not even make it through the, the front door of the prison system, and they were just assassinated. So the fact that a person of that caliber, that high profile, that much of a thorn in the side of the Russian government, as the previous Rebbe was, because he kept the Jewish outreach activities alive in the face of communism. So the, the fact that they released him was a tremendous thing. But here's, here's what's interesting about it. We know very well that the early communist movement had many Jewish adherents and even part of the leadership was Jewish. What's fascinating is that you had within the Communist Party in Russia, even within the secret police, you had a group of people who had this vehement opposition to Judaism, terrible, terrible hatred of their own people, which in itself is an illness. And they insisted that they were going to do everything in their power to undermine Judaism. So they were the ones who agitated for the rest of Jewish leaders, and they were the ones who were personally involved in the rest of the previous Rebbe. You know what's fascinating about it? He has a group of people who absolutely hated everything about Judaism, who wanted to run as far as they possibly could, but they chose as a name for their department within the secret police, they chose to call themselves the Jewish section, Yiv Sektia. I mean, it's a fascinating thing. But you hate it so much, well, then just like bury it, hide it, run away from it. And it's an incredible insight. It's an incredible insight because it tells us that as Jews, we feel compelled to identify as Jews, but we don't necessarily always know exactly what that means. So for that reason, I think this kind of a conversation around assimilation and around intermarriage plays very strongly into this conversation because you see, here's a fellow who gets up in the Knesset and he says that there's this second Holocaust unfolding through the course of assimilation and intermarriage. And straight away, somebody throws back at him and says, yes, but not everybody has the same definition of being Jewish, which is fair. But not every definition is necessarily valid. Might be how a person sees themselves or understands their Judaism. It's not necessarily valid. Here was a group of people who identified as being Jewish. How? By being the Jewish section of the communist 
regime with the singular goal of trying to undermine Judaism. Fascinating. And they still felt that they identified as Jews. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. SMS 34519. Telegram messages 0618951019. And you can tweet at FM and tweet Rabbi Shish. We're talking today about comments coming out of the Knesset that there's a second Holocaust unfolding through intermarriage and assimilation. What do you think about that? In meanwhile, Pick and Pay, Norwood, Hyper have these pocket savings sweet deals just for you. Pick and Pay kosher marinated chicken flatties assorted are 69 rand 99 a kilo. Pick and Pay fresh chicken is only 69 rand 99 a kilo. Pick and Pay kosher fresh chicken bry packs are 79 rand 99 a kilo. And their fresh hake headed and gutted fresh fish, I'm assuming, is 89 rand 99 per kilo. Catch these and many more specials in store. These specials are exclusive to Pick and Pay Norwood Hyper and are only while stocks last. Pick and Pay Hyper Norwood is the best place to shop when you want to buy a lot. I don't know if you know about this, but the Jewish Community Survey of South Africa will close next Thursday, the 25th of July. This is your last chance to participate and have your say. So all you got to do is you go to www.jcssa2019.coza. So JC, Jewish Community, S, Survey, SA, South Africa. So jcssa2019.coza to sign up for more information Visit jcssa2019.coza or check out their Facebook page. If you have just joined us, it's Fresh Thinking Time. You're with Rabbi Shishla Tull, 3 o'clock. And we're talking today about something that seems to have stirred a hornet's nest in the Jewish world. And that is the comments by a Haver Knesset, a member of the Israeli parliament, saying that we are experiencing something akin to a second holocaust in Assimilation and intermarriage Here's an unsigned SMS that says Self-hating Jews have caused a holocaust Or perhaps their own holocaust It's an interesting thing I always wonder I always wonder about the concept of a self-hating Jew. You know, we were talking a minute ago just about this Yevsexia, which was this, this group of Jewish people working in the secret police of Stalin's Russia, trying to directly undermine and destroy Jewish infrastructure. They were responsible, personally responsible for the arrest, the uh, exile, and even the deaths of an untold number of Jewish people. And yet they insisted on calling themselves Jewish. And you know what happened at the end of it? Sadly, but not surprisingly, the regime turned on them, and they landed up being killed by Stalin's Russia. Can you just imagine that? That's what happens. You try too hard to be something that you're not. Well, especially in our context, try so hard to hide, and somehow they follow us around. So Holocaust, loaded term, somebody says. Somebody also on Twitter says, Holocaust is a loaded term that is associated with crimes against humanity. This is no joking matter. Surely there are better ways to say it without using the term Holocaust, which is fair, which is fair. So give us a suggestion. Give us a suggestion. What could possibly could be a better way to say it. And I'm not saying that if we don't have a better way to say it, that justifies the way that he said it. You know, it's interesting also is from a Jewish perspective, the Talmud says, really, really interesting, tells the story of just before Moses was born. You go back and read that story. It's incredibly insightful. Basically, what happened was this. There was a 
a Jewish community living. They weren't Jewish per se yet. The Torah had not yet been given. They hadn't yet been turned into a nation. So they were effectively a, an oversized family who was living in Egypt, who had come down, Jacob's descendants, who had come down to settle in Egypt. And one of the things that they did is they perpetuated. They actually had large families. The leader at that time was a man called Amram, who was the father of Moses. And he already had two children. He had a son and a daughter. And when Pharaoh made the edict that all the boys who would be born had to be drowned in the Nile River, Amram said to his wife, under those circumstances, we can, we just simply can't have any further children. I mean, you can't do that. You cannot bring a child into this world if it's guaranteed that they're going to die. Incidentally, it's quite a useful conversation to think about also in a different context to what we're talking about today, in the context of people who are afraid to have children because they think that the world is going so bad. Anyhow, so coming back. So Amram says, listen, we're going to separate. He tells his wife we're going to separate. That, that way we are guaranteed we won't have any further children and won't run the risk of them being drowned by Pharaoh. And that's what they do. Now, he was a leader in the community. So no sooner does Amram decide that he's separating from his wife, immediately what follows is the rest of the community follow suit. I mean, this is what the leader of the community is doing. So it must obviously be the right thing to do. And that's exactly what happens. And he's got a daughter, this daughter, Miriam, and she's a young girl. And she, and she says, you know, Dad, this is terrible. You cannot do this. In fact, she says, not only can you not do this, you are worse than Pharaoh. Can you imagine that? You are worse than Pharaoh. What do you mean you are worse than Pharaoh? I mean, Pharaoh's a despot. Pharaoh's drowning babies. And she gives a number of explanations. One of the explanations is that Pharaoh is a wicked man, and so therefore there's no guarantee that what he says will ever happen. Another version of what she was trying to say was, you have to realize that uh, Pharaoh, by tomorrow, you know, he might not be in power any longer. But ultimately... What it actually lands up being is that she says, Pharaoh will only kill them in this world. You rob those babies of the opportunity to come into the world. And if you don't come into the world, you never have the opportunity to grow your soul, to move forward. In other words, what she's saying, which is really, really interesting, is that a spiritual de devastation might be more of an issue than a physical devastation. It's something that we've thought, we've had, it comes up as a theme in a number of places in Jewish history. You see this, for example, in the distinction between the Hanukkah and Purim stories, where Purim was an attempt to wipe out the Jewish body and Hanukkah the Jewish soul. And they're equated. Nobody would ever tell you. Think about this for a second. Nobody would ever tell you that the festival of Purim is a more significant festival than the festival of Hanukkah, even though in the festival of Purim it was a direct threat of absolute genocide. In fact, the reach that Haman had during the Purim story was greater than the reach that Hitler had during the, the Second World War. The fact is that Haman never got to that point, right? He was taken out before he got to that point. But the threat that extended over the Jewish people at that time was incredible. Whereas if you look at the Hanukkah story, the threat was not really against the people. The threat was against the, the behavior, the, the, the religious commitment of the Jewish nation. Uh, in fact, the particular decrees that the Hellenists in, enacted in Israel at the time were specifically decrees against practice. They had no decree against being a Jewish person. It was just that they didn't like certain of the practices. So 
I think it's an interesting thing when you just pause for a moment. You look at that from a Jewish perspective. We do equate the two. Purim, which was a threat to the entire Jewish nation physically. Hanukkah, which is a threat to the entire Jewish nation spiritually, have equal status in our history and in the nature of our celebrations and in the nature of our thinking. It's definitely something to consider. Um, from a Jewish point of view, we are souls that occupy bodies. So should damage happen to the soul, that is profound and in a certain sense more profound even than damage to the body. Now, I'm not saying that that necessarily means the word Holocaust is an appropriate word. Fine, I get that and understand why people battle with it. And to be perfectly honest, I think anybody would battle with it because Holocaust evokes a particular kind of a story, a particular kind of a um, strategic attempt to wipe out an entire nation, whereas assimilation, as many people, in fact, a number of people have pointed out over here, assimilation is a choice, right? Intermarriage is a choice. Being a victim of the Holocaust was not the choice. Of those victims. So that's a very important distinction to make as well. Uh, here's an interesting one. Sean, who's always got a really good way with words on Twitter, says, The Holocaust was a catastrophic event in Jewish history. It is tragic that too many Jews are more familiar with the names of death camps than the names of the Mishnahs. It's quite something. <laughs> I, I, I love the way that he puts things. He kind of has a way with words. Because it does make you think. It does make you think from a Jewish perspective. There's no question about it that a spiritual devastation is at least of the caliber of a physical devastation. And that's something that we should think about. Love to hear your thoughts as well. SMS 34519, Telegram 0618951019. And lots of tweets on Chai FM and at Rabbi Shish. I'm not going to get through all of them because some of them are quite similar to each other. This is Fresh Thinking with Rabbi Ari Sheshla. Isn't it interesting how you get uh, different opinions flying in at the same time? So here's Mikey on Twitter who says, While I agree that assimilation is an issue that needs addressing, in my humble opinion, to term it a second Holocaust minimizes the actual horror and lessons of the Holocaust. I'm not so sure about the lessons part. The horror, definitely. The lessons, hmm, that's an interesting one. Don't know. Don't know if I agree about that. And here's an SMS, which unfortunately is anonymous, says nothing wrong with assimilation. Being a good person has more value. So much we can talk about over here. An interview on Chai with a famous South African spoke of this very thing. He made a huge difference to the world about interactive peace amongst different people, but couldn't be brainwashed into his ancestral Holocaust way of thinking. Wow, that's quite a statement. He died two days ago, so we know, of course, who you're talking about. Everybody knew he was Jewish, once a Jew, always a Jew, whether religious or not, married to a Jew or not, etc. Nobody would debate that. And the SMS continues, be a good person. Some religious folk have a lot to answer for with their arrogance. That's absolutely true. Look, there's a whole lot that we could talk about, and this is the unfortunate thing about when you have a conversation over the airwaves as opposed to a conversation face-to-face, -face, because each there's so many things in that SMS. Nothing wrong with assimilation. I have a very very big problem with making that kind of a comment because the reality is in fact somebody earlier said and and this i agree with somebody earlier on twitter and i did not read it out said that if a person does assimilate and i'm trying to find this so i could read it verbatim but if a person does assimilate or if a person does intermarry or engages in any kind of behavior that is not in line with judaism we should not excommunicate them and we should not exclude and this was the expression we should not exclude them from the circle and i couldn't agree more absolutely 100 percent. you don't ever you don't ever distance or degrade a person because you don't agree with their choices even if you believe that you have a god-given 
truth as to what choices you should make. No question about it. We do not and we should not ever distance a person because of their behavior. You're exactly like the SMS says. You're a Jew. You're always a Jew. That's the way that it is. So don't exclude them from the circle. I agree 100%. But you have to make sure that there's still a circle. You have to ensure that. Because otherwise you have people who, yes, there's an example. If you want to, as this SMS invokes uh, Johnny Clegg, that's obviously a person who's an incredibly good person. Not every Jewish person is that amazing personality who brings about this. Sorry, we're not. We're not all like that. And, and we don't all have the, you know, this binary choice of either you're a good person or you are connected to your Judaism because there are people who are neither and there are people who are both. And we've got to be really careful not to stereotype and, you know, start saying that, well, the one is better than the other because all people are this way or all people are that way. It's just not the way that it is. What's important is if you don't have – this is in any system. This is not a uniquely Jewish thing. If you don't have integrity to the system, if you don't have a security to the system, you don't have a system. So if your opinion and the next person's opinion and the next person – and everybody has their version of what it all means, well, that's great for a conversation around a table, and that's fantastic. But at the end of the day, there's got to be something that defines what this group is. You know, I'm sure that if we had to have a debate about what it means to be a South African, people would also have really, really different opinions about it, uh, as you have today in America with the debate about whether a migrant is or isn't considered somebody who should be welcome in the country. These are interesting conversations, but at the end of the day, you still have to have a structure. You have to have a system that determines these things. It can't merely be matters of opinion because matters of opinion can go all over the place. I'm reminded of the Mishnah. The Mishnah in Pirkei Avos, in Ethics of the Fathers, that says we as Jewish people should be students of Aaron. So I mentioned earlier about Miriam, who was the sister of Moses, and Aaron was his brother. Aaron was known to have been the most tolerant, kind, giving, wonderful person of his generation. In fact, he has the singular accolade of being the only person ever recorded in biblical history that when he passed away, Everybody was upset because you know how it is, right? There's always somebody who said, meh, that guy wasn't, I wasn't his biggest fan. Aaron, everybody loved him. So the Mishnah therefore teaches us that we should be like him. We should be like Aaron. He has a person who cares. He has a person who loves. He has a person who lives for peace. Emulate him. But it says it this way. You should be a student of Aaron. Very carefully chosen words. Don't think you are an Aaron. Be a student. You learn. You learn how to do it. You practice. Keep trying. Keep improving. Never say you've reached it. Very important. I think it's, uh, it, it becomes a little bit arrogant when a person turns, turns around and says, I'm a good person. Well, hang on a second. I've never yet met the person who says I'm not a good person. I've heard people tell me I'm not a good Jew. That I've heard. But the person who says I'm not a good person, it's a fascinating thing. Whenever you mediate, as rabbis do and mediators will tell you, whenever you mediate, you'll always hear both sides saying, I don't think I'm a bad person, but... Right, So he doesn't say be a good person. He says be a student. Be a student of being a good person. Believe that you're always a work in progress, that there's always an opportunity for growth, that there's always an opportunity for more goodness. There's always an opportunity to hear and learn from somebody else. Never get to that point where you sit on your pedestal and say, I've arrived. And then he continues and he says, so what does it mean to be a student of Aaron? I have shalom, somebody who loves peace. It's got to be something you care about. It's not just lip service or ticking a box or saying, well, you know, this is what we believe. No, you should be personal, something that you love. You love peace. And you should then chase peace. 
that implies that you're proactive, that you don't just say, listen, I'll hang out with the people who are peaceful. No, you've got to be proactive about it. Do something about it. Generate peace. Create peace. And then he says you've got to love people. Except it's a unique use of the term because the word brios actually means creatures. So there's some people out there who quite honestly, when we look at them, we think, wow, I don't know what God was thinking. I cannot see any value in this person. Probably the only positive thing I could say about them is that God chose to create them creatures. Love them too. That's hard. I don't care how much a person says that they're a good person. None of us is yet at that level where we can turn around and say, I love all people. No, you can say, I love people that others don't love. You can say, I love more people than most. It's difficult and it's incredibly un- unusual for somebody to say, I love all people. That includes the ones who I know. Sometimes it's easier to love the ones you don't know. And then he says, And I think that that might be the most important thing in our conversation over here. If you really love somebody, then you will bring them to the value set of the Torah. He won't just say, okay, whatever floats your boat, whatever makes you happy. I really believe in this stuff, but you can do whatever you want. No, I really believe in this stuff, and therefore, because I care about you and love you, and, and I believe in this stuff, that's actually why I would like you to engage with this stuff. Because I think it's better for everybody, for you, for me, for everybody. You don't have to be like me. You don't have to look like me. Um, it's just that you stand to gain, and, and I'd love you to gain. So I think that that's an important perspective for us to suggest that uh, – it's like I say, it's a pity that it's anonymous, but to suggest that assimilation is not a problem, I think it's a bit, unfortunately, you know, it's a little bit short-sighted because at the end of the day, we have to have who we are in order to, to continue. If we were worried about the Nazis trying to wipe out Jews, whether you want to use the word or not, we should be worried about assimilation wiping out our nation. We should because it's, it's tenuous at best that people will hang on to their Credentials and saying I'm Jewish by culture or I'm Jewish by humanitarianism, whatever. We know we've been there. We've done this. We've seen it dozens of times in our history. And you know what happens? It works for a while and one of two things happen. Either these people reclaim their Jewish heritage or unfortunately they're no longer Jewish or their children are no longer Jewish. That's the fact of our history, unfortunately. This is Fresh Thinking with Rabbi Ari Shishla. Lots and lots of opinions coming through. Lots. Uh, We're not going to have enough time for all of this. Rene says, I know Jewish marriages that went belly up, and thereafter they married non-Jews and are very happy. Okay. Uh, I mean, I don't know if that proves anything, unfortunately. In fact, uh, for every one of those, I can tell you a story the other way around. Because people are people, and whether a marriage succeeds or not is not necessarily the uh, test, right? I don't think that's necessarily the test of whether this is the right approach. A lot of messages coming through. Some of them are very, very, some very similar, I suppose. Some of the messages are very similar to each other. That's what's so difficult about this kind of a conversation. You see, the minute somebody says something that's loaded, so you use the word Holocaust, people become very emotive about it. And I agree that perhaps it's not the correct terminology to use. But at the same time, I think that we should not minimize in any way what's going on in the in the world of uh, intermarriage and assimilation. It's 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 something serious. Remember, there was that Pew Research uh, survey that was done in the United States last year, and the numbers were shocking. They really were shocking. I don't even know if we're necessarily trailing so far behind. Another anonymous SMS says, if we really believed in God to keep our Jewishness alive, would we be having this discussion? Does not our very belief in God, whether religious or not, keep us alive? Well, yeah, I think that's a really good point. 
I really think that that is a very good point. Is that, uh, and, and it goes a little bit back to what I was saying before, that it's there and it's embedded and it's kind of part of who we are and that's why we find it so difficult to run away. So I guess it's a bit of a, yeah, okay. It, it's definitely a little bit of a rhetorical question to say if we really believed in God, would we be having this discussion? But does not our very belief in God keep us alive? It does. It does. Belief is a funny thing though, right? Belief for so many people is kind of back of mind, and myself included a lot of the time. It's back of mind. It's abstract. It's not necessarily what we live with in a in a personal context on a daily basis. So really really good point like if you really believe in god then should you really believe that god has a purpose and a mandate and a way of life that he'd like you to keep and i'm not suggesting for one second that god expects us all to be clones of each other not at all that's why we have 12 tribes and that's why we have so many different mitzvahs and that's why we have different traditions to accommodate all kinds of people so let's be clear about that the idea is not i don't believe i mean i'm not speaking on behalf of uh, of anybody who made statements about the holocaust but i don't believe that the solution by anybody's stretch, is that we should all just become clones of each other. Fascinating conversation. I think we could continue this conversation for hours. My suggestion is that rather than playing wordplay, Holocaust, not Holocaust, let's just take a moment to be a little bit introspective and say, hang on a second, is our Jewish religion as solid as it should be? Forget about the states for a second because we don't really have influence there. What about here at home, here in South Africa? Are we as strong as we as we should be? In our own homes, in our own communities, in our broader community. And what could we do to be more inclusive, to make people feel that they're part and parcel of the Jewish community, to make people feel that it's worth their while to be part not only of the community but of the great religion that has been around for thousands of years and outlived just about every, not just about, has outlived every attempt to undermine it, whether it was aggressive or subtle. Lots more we could think about. My suggestion is... Let's think about doing one more Jewish thing in the next couple of days. Maybe that will be our personal answer to this question. It's been lovely. A lot of messages I didn't get to, but most of them were quite similar to others. Thank you for all the insights and participation. Have a wonderful Shabbos, and please God will keep you, will catch up with you again next week.